Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Diane Wiradu, messaging expert, pun-loving polyglot and secret poet. She is founder of Lion Words, where she helps scaling SaaS and B2B companies simplify their message, attract more perfect fit customers, and get better results from their marketing. Laser-focused on customer research and brand strategy, Diane blends the art of storytelling with conversion-focused messaging techniques to help her clients stand out from the crowd. Diane says, it sounds cliche and cheesy, but copy is a conversation. The only thing is we can't hear our prospects, so we need to know them. We need to anticipate their needs, and the easiest way to structure your message is to answer the questions in your prospect's head. Welcome to the show, Diane. Thanks, Giles. Brilliant intro. I'm trying to think when I said that. <laughs> I think that's a marketing meetup one, actually, because I switched it last minute. Uh-huh. Ah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did. I do. I do kind of bring up the conversation bit quite a bit. It's uh, I think it's a good it's a good metaphor. Um, we normally have seven quick fires, as listeners will know, but I think I've actually got eight here. So oh, fuck it. We go, we're going with eight. So uh... extra torture. <laughs> <laughs> right or type? Type. Barcelona or Sydney? Oh, interesting. Yeah, Barcelona, no doubt. Crisp connoisseur or wine snob? Oh my gosh. Crisps versus wine. You know, I think wine, I think wine's gonna pip it, to be honest. I'm a big fan of both, but <laughs> yeah. You'll only want crisps after a bit of I wine. Know. <laughs> well they go to they go so well together. This one's yeah. probably the hardest question out of the bunch. The rest will be easy now. Oh, I don't know. Favourite David now? David Ogilvy or Dave Harland? Oh, it's got to be Dave Harland. It's got to be, yeah, of course. Childhood crushes now. Legolas or Nelly? <laughs> you really, you really went, your research is just beyond belief. All right, so, you know, I think I've got to, I've got to go, I've got to go Legolas. I've got to go Orlando Bloom, the, the, the elf, <laughs> the elf he is. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I'm Lego last. Don't, don't tell my wife. <laughs> Espresso martini or whiskey sour? Oh, God. Um, I think for the sort of longevity, it's, I think it's going to be the espresso martini. Yeah. Yeah, good shout. Uh, two more. So deafening silence or the type of music that plays in a hotel lift? <laughs> you know... I know where you pulled that from. And that's actually something my niece said to me when I was playing lo-fi music, um, which is pretty much the only type of music that I can like write to, nothing that pulls me off into lyrics. And she said, God, auntie, you listen to the type of music that plays in a hotel lift, which is a real <laughs> testament to how harsh my, my family are. I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go with the, the lo-fi, the, the hotel lobby lift music, yeah. Nice, nice. It also reflects on how many cool hotel lifts she might have been in. Yeah, to be honest, yeah. 
<laughs> She's too well-travelled at a young age. Right, last one. Uh, J.K. Rowling or Jacqueline Wilson? Oh, my God. All right. Childhood. You know, I think for the... That this one is a bit of a risky one, but I think thinking back to my childhood, the breadth, uh, like the repertoire, I think it's going to have to be Jacqueline Wilson. Well, Chloe in the office will be delighted by that. She's a, <laughs> she's, a, she's, a, she's a huge fan. She had a right pop at me for not being very familiar with Jacqueline Wilson. So um, I, I promised her and I'll promise you that that will change now. I'll introduce my two daughters to... He did all right there. That wasn't too tricky. Yeah, not too bad. I think I think I had quite a, a, a fun one, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Clearly, all my hobbies are related to cocktails, wine, um... <laughs> elves, <laughs> children's books. So yeah, I go off quite lightly. Thank you for that. <laughs> people with people with pointy ears. Lovely. Um, right. So listen, we, we to start the show, we always like to celebrate the weird and wonderful ways that guests have ended up where they are now. So if we go right back to the beginning, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper copy writing job? Oh, interesting. So I think my first ever, ever job, it's quite hard to kind of go back into the archives, really. But I think I did kind of a one one week or two weeks stint doing some silver service waitressing. I don't know why it was so short. I'm not sure if I gave up or it was just a short-term thing. But the first kind of job that I had for more than a week um, was actually the supermarket. So my first job was in a local uh, co-op. So if anyone who doesn't know, it's a local supermarket in the UK, um, stacking the shelves. Um, so I actually, I didn't even have the kind of sexy cashier job where you could like sit chat with people handle all the cash I was like stocking the dairy and fresh produce aisle basically so <laughs> that was my first job at like the age 16 worked there for a year and I actually I actually really enjoyed it like hard graft but it was good fun yeah yeah yeah. nice cool and then and then did you know at that stage that copy was something you were interested in words and, and, and the like oh my gosh no absolutely absolutely not so my kind of intro or my I guess my route into the world of copy was really through languages so I went off and I studied languages at university um and so most of my if we kind of move in I guess to the kind of proper proper job have always been related to languages words I worked in a localization company for a number of years doing kind of project management and then I managed a team um and I managed um, even kind of managed a, a dubbing studio, the subtitling studio. So we're always kind of working on communication, um, but not copy. If we, the funny thing is, if, if the question is, what is your first like copy messaging related job? It's probably the one that I'm doing now, actually. <laughs> so yeah, that my route was, was fairly linear, um, but it was more through, I guess, the world of languages and, and working as a linguist for a number of years. Yeah. And, and what, what led to you becoming a linguist and studying language? So I just, I just loved, I loved languages, like even from a really early age, I was one of those kids where at like the age of 11, 12, 13, like I just was like, great, love languages, love learning French, Spanish, love English, hated all of anything that had numbers. So I hated the sciences, hated the maths. And I didn't really know what, what, what it was or why, but I just loved it. And I think over the years that's developed um, and I think I'm sort of more able to understand that I just really love like the power of kind of communication, the power of kind of expressing yourself and ex- kind of sharing a message in so many different ways. And I do think that actually having that kind of academic background and under- understanding languages, grammar, syntax, how to 
express one message in one language and then in another has actually really given me a solid foundation when it comes to like messaging um, and copy because you're doing a similar thing. It's just that you're not going from one language to another. You're going from like, okay, your thoughts and visions and product messaging into, you know, like clear, plain English and all that kind of stuff. But you're still kind of transforming one thing uh, to something else that people can kind of understand and really get. When I read that you were fluent in, I think it's four languages, I immediately felt not only, well, firstly, intimidated. Uh, <laughs> secondly, I, I kind of, because I, I, I share maybe a fraction of your passion for languages, but I quite proudly claim to be the opposite of fluent in, in a few. So I spent some time living in Bilbao, so I, I, I intentionally learned a few, and I'm talking about literally, the, you know, the true meaning of the word, a few words in Basque. Oh, I lived in Indon- Indonesia for a couple of years, so instead of learning a bit of, of, of Indonesian, which I did, I also learned Javanese, or, or again, a few words in Javanese, which was the dialect of, the, you know, the, the actual island itself. And what I found fascinating just from that was how just the the simple knowledge of certain words in people's mother tongue had such a dramatic effect on how willing they were to receive you you know in the context of you know physically being in their country and it was just hugely hugely interesting and powerful so I spent a year or so teaching English in in Indonesia and again it was that gave me a huge understanding of not just verbal language but the kind of physical ways in which people communicate which is I find hugely valuable in what I do now so you must have that times a million uh, because you've you've obviously learned to sort of flex that range of language and communication across so many other languages it's amazing yeah I think I think what you said is brilliant as well because it's it's sort of language is just this kind of vessel you know that that thing that we use to communicate but it's really like a, a window into our culture right and you know learning more about how we are as people and obviously not just like I know we're not just talking about business now we're obviously just talking about communication in general but really it's just all about kind of really being able to communicate with someone on like a a deeper level so yeah I I love it and also I think now I, I always make the joke that now that I can speak multiple languages I can speak to like you know five billion people instead of one which is great as a chatty expert that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. When you frame it like that, that's incredible. <laughs> and, and at what stage then, or how did you start to think about it? Not only as your own expertise and, and learning how to to be such a you know a talented linguist, and thinking about language in the context of business. The big change for me happened around the pandemic. I'm a classic pandemic pivot case, what I kind of call myself. Um, So I was very kind of firmly within the translation and localization industry up until about kind of 2019. Um, And then I I was already considering that I kind of wanted to do something a little bit different, that I wanted to be a little bit more hands-on with clients because a lot of that work that I was doing was through agencies at that point. Um, And I knew that I wanted to kind of have a bit of a bigger impact on businesses. And then I just kind of lost all my clients. I lost all my clients overnight. I had all my eggs in one basket. And so it was just that perfect opportunity for me to kind of reinvent myself. And so I'd had my eyes on copywriting for quite a while. I've had a bit of, I guess, 
contact or interaction with like copywriting from a bit more of a brand perspective than a conversion copywriting perspective, which is what I ended up doing um, from the company that I was working with. Um, and so I just said, right, I'm, I'm going, all, I go, I'm going all in. I think there was just a day when I said, right, I'm a copywriter from now on. And then I just went all in on learning about the world of copy and content and, and what it meant and um, kind of just really shifting my focus. And I guess that was the beginning really. It's kind of the the rest is history. I don't, I don't know if that's a good explanation of the story, but that's it, that's what it felt like. Really. Do you know what? I, I find that sometimes I ask questions that in my head make complete sense because I wonder when a transition happens. And even the way I asked you the question, it probably assumes that there's a significant event or a one day thing that led to you thinking, oh, I'm now going to think about this in the context of business, not just life in general. But it's things that you can't ever separate things that kind of cleanly. So it, it makes sense that it would have been a gradual thing. And there's nothing wrong with with uh, having a pandemic pivot, especially if it led to you know where you are today. So that's wonderful. And when you were so when you were when you were looking at um, translations and, and you were working with agency, presumably you were given copy and then the next stage was obviously translating that but did you is that when you first started to become aware of the amount of fluff which is a word I know you like to use quite (laughs) often when we're diagnosing a copy so um, I would say not really I would say as a when I was working as a translator the biggest the biggest challenge wasn't really wasn't really the fluff it was that uh clients didn't really have kind of an understanding of what their brand was, what their message was. Um, So they would just kind of hand you something and say, cool, now we're launching in the UK market, you know, like a big Italian company or a Spanish company. Say, right, we want you to, you know, localize this for X market and just kind of give you nothing, (laughs) like nothing else to work on. Like the, with hindsight, everything that I use now to create messaging for my clients, all of that background research, understanding of the brand, understanding of the customers, their emotional desires and motivations, like you linguists just don't get any of that. So I think the biggest challenge back then wasn't really the fluff. Um, What I've come to understand now um, about how kind of fluffy copy is, is really just by entering um, the world of like SaaS and B2B, (laughs) working with niching down and working with B2B, and SaaS companies has opened my eyes to a whole world of fluff. Um, and that's, it's almost like my mission now. <laughs> and I think that's why I enjoy working with um, tech companies so much because often, you know, obviously tech companies are often founded by someone a lot more technical. They know their product, they um, are solving a problem, but they're not necessarily communication experts. And so I think that's why I enjoy my work so much because I come in, I'm like, cool, this is my thing. Like, that's your thing. Let's blend these two things together and actually help people understand what you're trying to say. Because what you're saying now is really fluffy and actually is telling people nothing at all. That's nice the way you just um, articulated that, which I suppose shouldn't come as a surprise seeing as you, you are a wordsmith. But the um, the empathy, I suppose, you show in terms of the founder has their thing and this is your thing. I think that it's a really healthy attitude to have, especially when you're trying to declutter words which have the best intent especially when working in in sort of b2b SaaS type spaces i mean completely i'm just gonna yeah i mean completely i was just gonna add you know messaging thing is messaging is 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 kind of hard you know and i think it's very easy for copywriters messaging experts to just say oh this is really this is like very simple how could you not see this but 
it's sort of deceptively simple, but not necessarily easy. You know, anything that to do with words, we tend to think, okay, anyone can whip that up. We all write. But I think, you know, it takes a bit more effort than just kind of jotting down things on the page and understanding that, you know, different uh, teams and different people in different roles have different um, uh, challenges. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You seem to think and you certainly sound and talk like what we would call a proper, I'm doing bunny ears here, proper marketer. Um, and at GASP, we're, we're all about research strategy and then tactics. So that kind of research diagnosis phase is, is a, you know, it's, it's unavoidable whether we're working on a project or a retained uh, clients or whether we're building, you know, a 12 month strategy, whatever it might be. So I feel very at home talking to you, a copywriter who talks about research as such a, you know, important, vital step in the process. How do you approach the research that you do with your clients and, and why do you think it's so important? Yeah, I mean, research research is simply important because without it we're kind of guessing, right? And so I think that would that would probably be the the simplest way to put it. The way that I think of research, I think of it as kind of research and discovery, right? So I think that there are two sides to research, particularly when it comes to messaging and messaging projects and the work that I'm like exclusively focused on. One, that first part is like internal research. And then the second part is, okay, external research. So I think that the first step for kind of any messaging project and why it's, you know, so important is kind of documenting and evaluating where you are already, like your existing messaging, your existing beliefs. Um, And the reason I do that, and the reason I think that's also a core part of the research is because any project, whether that's updating your copy or updating your whole messaging strategy, needs to have like a clear point of departure. You know, you kind of want to start with this internal compass. And if you start by kind of documenting where you're at, it gives you a really good benchmark to evaluate. Okay, well, this is what we're evaluating at. Like, how are we, how are we improving because uh, most of the time with my clients, you're not reinventing the wheel, you know, for most of the time, you're kind of halfway there with your your messaging, you're just kind of missing the spot. And then that second piece, the big piece of research is really kind of validating messaging with the market. So customer research and also competitive research. And I mean, the, the reason that that's so important is because, you know, your your messaging is not about you it's about your customer right your messaging your copy it all has a function um, and it should speak to your customer it should solve their problems and it should express and articulate your the value of your product in a way that your kind of customers understand and I think there isn't um, there's no way to create messaging that's really going to resonate if you don't have any um, customer research as part of that process. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Well said. Do you do you find it? Um, do you find the research phase, your research and discovery phase? Do you find that something that you find yourself justifying, or at least selling in with clients and having to justify it, or do you see it more as just your default standard approach to to putting pen to paper? So I think I'm quite lucky that I don't find myself really justifying the research part of um, a project. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One, I think I do a very good job of clearly explaining my process and that research is a huge part of that. Um, I say it, you know, the first conversation I have with clients, I talk about it all the time online as well. So it'd be very surprising if you came to me and said, hey, can we just like 
cr- crack on with a project <laughs> without any research. Like, so yeah, so I think that's one, one reason that, you know, I talk about my kind of framework. I, I've also talked about this kind of four-step uh, messaging framework research, um, sorry, ROAR, so RAW, the RAW framework, research, opportunity, assemble, and then review. And obviously the first R is research. So it's always brought up. And then I think the other reason why I'm I'm kind of lucky that I don't have to justify it so much is that I'm, I think I'm working with clients who also kind of understand that it's the route that they need to take to get the outcome that they want. I think sometimes we can throw around the word research, which is very useless, a bit unsexy. And really research is just a means to an end. What we actually want is like customer insights. We want to have messaging that resonates. And I think if you talk too much about the word research and not the outcome of the research, that's probably where you can get a bit stuck. What do you think of buyer personas? Ooh, how much time do we have? (laughs) As long as as we need. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes the, I'm always kind of wary wary of kind of talking about buyer personas because I tend to just go in and trash them but I do need to set a bit of context I think traditional traditional buyer personas that are very heavily demographic based um, that don't tell you much about your ideal client or your uh, audience's emotional uh, behaviors their jobs to be done their desires are absolutely useless. Like if your buyer personas have a name, firstly, they have just like just a job title or even worse, it's, it says kind of, you know, companies with 500 employees. <laughs> like this is the type of, that. those are kind of red flags for me as of, of traditional buyer personas that are not really going to help. Um, again, the context of messaging and copy, right? Because that's, I'm always kind of speaking from that perspective. Now, on the other side of things, um, you could say that perhaps some of the, the the research that I gather and the things that I produce are kind of very close to a buyer persona. But what I actually put together is um, I kind of put together a synthesized uh, document of findings, which are all based around customer motivations. They're around pains and problems that customers are feeling around uh, triggers, around hesitations, needs, desires, all those kind of things. So I think if you're approaching buyer personas from this perspective, you know, that you have psychographic data, not just demographic data, then um, then they're useful. <laughs> so I think that was kind of a diplomatic <laughs> No, I think it it was diplomatic, but also I think it was bang on because, I mean, you said um, prior to me throwing you that, you know, slightly unfair curveball, you said that research as a means to an end is fine. And I think that I find, you know, the similar answer would suffice for what do you think of buyer personas, I suppose, because it kind of depends where it leads to, doesn't it? But you're right, people, it's the same with any type of segmentation work that I see. People can fall into the trap of slicing these segments up with the blunt, bluntest of knives or even forks sometimes, the mess they make of it. And whether it's, it's, it's you know, using demographic data and just creating a segment of people that are age 40 to 45, whatever it might be, does then have you questioning the effectiveness. But I think buyer personas just tends to be one of those bigger holes that people can fall into, one of those bigger traps too easily. I mean, the the I've definitely said in the past... Um, throw your buyer personas in the bin. <laughs> like I've definitely <laughs> been known to say that. 
Um, but I think there's a bit of, I think it's necessary to have a bit of context behind that because not everyone is doing buyer personas in, in that way. But I, I just think that we need to evaluate how we're using them, what's the goal, and if the if the the data that we're pulling out is actually helpful for particularly for for messaging for copy if you're handing buy personas to a copywriter but it doesn't say anything about you know their kind of why they buy then yeah then it's not helpful i remember working with a big multinational brand who had who despite their scale and the size you know the whole geography of the company was vast but despite that they still were very much founder led and the founder had a few I suppose problems accepting the fact that he wasn't representative of the market. And in, I remember in that instance, they had created some buyer personas. And whilst the personas themselves, you could probably tear to shreds, it at least was very successful in the founder and his senior management team understanding quite clearly that the buyer persona wasn't them. <laughs> and actually, as a, as a kind of means to an end there, you've actually overcome a huge obstacle whilst perhaps doing something that might, you know, you could arguably do better. So I suppose, yeah, context dictates everything, doesn't it, in that, in that regard. How do you make sure you do your customer research right? If we assume that people can do buyer personas fairly wrong, how can people do it better? Yeah, that's a great question. The way that I look at customer research for the purpose of um, optimizing or revamping your messaging or for copy is that um, you really kind of want to go out there and speak to uh, existing customers to better understand how they think, how they feel about your product, your service, um, so that you can kind of gather voice of customer. I think that's that's kind of the key goal of customer research, uh, particularly in copy and messaging, is understanding and, and having a bank of those words that your customers use to kind of describe uh, your product, but also describe that whole journey of kind of interacting um, with your product or service as well. So what was going on before? How was the customer journey and that kind of discovery process? Um, what was onboarding like, or what was it like working with you? So understanding more about uh, the kind of value, what stood out about you. And then also you want to to ask questions around um, that kind of post, right? So the transformation, the benefits, like what were the outcomes of working with you? So in terms of kind of improving that process, I, I think it depends what obviously where you're starting and how you're doing things already. There are a few different ways to approach customer research. A couple of quick and kind of easy methods that I like to use are one, my favorite is interviews because I don't think you can beat conversations um, with customers. There's just something so different about uh, actually kind of talking about your experiences rather than like filling in a form. Um, and also, you know, I think five or 10 conversations will beat like hundreds of survey responses. So conversations are definitely the, a great place to start if you can. Um, sending out customer surveys as well. Um, very well, I guess, worded and structured. You want some open questions. You don't want leading questions. That's a great option if you have a huge bank of customers. So I don't know, maybe if you're running an, uh, an e-commerce and you can have a, a huge amount of qualitative, sorry, quantitative data as well as qualitative, then I think surveys are a great idea. Um, but you can also kind of do things like review mining and kind of looking at um, the reviews that people, that your customers have been leaving as well and using those to also get an insight into what people are saying and how they think about your, your product. But def definitely for... Uh, my kind of B2B um, and tech clients, the thing that I really 
use a lot is um, customer interviews. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. I share what you're saying about the significance of an actual, you know, unfiltered face-to-face interview with with customers. I couldn't agree more versus a maybe quite sterile survey response, depending on, you know, what your objectives are. I also find, and actually I wonder if you find it either an opportunity to expand what you do for your customers or at the other end of the spectrum, maybe it becomes a, a pesky distraction of sorts. But talking to existing companies, whether it is about the initial onboarding or the experience of using that that, that product or, or service, can also be like an audit of sorts for your clients. And it could throw up lots of lots of areas of their business that actually could be better or could be tightened. So does, do you find it hard to stay on track there? Or do you see that very much as part of the process of your research with with clients to feed that all back yeah i mean i i think it's kind of like a kind of killing bird killing two birds with one stone um situation because um whenever i'm running uh, customer interviews for my clients there will always be some kind of feedback about the product that that will come up about the service and i i kind of dive into it i ask them follow-up questions but then i kind of park that to one side so i kind of put that i note that down on like a different sheet and i deliver that feedback to my client in a different way as well because like my focus is really just understanding uh the mindset the motivation really getting great language and a kind of understanding i guess kind of tapping into what what can i pull out that will will really better inform our messaging how can we talk about the product in a way that's going to kind of better speak to these people but of course they're I think every single project that I do for a client, there is always some kind of positive feedback and there is always some kind of negative feedback. And I think it's also because I'm a third party. So often uh, customers will be like, oh, okay, well, you know what? This thing has happened and I would love for that for that to be different. Um, so I just kind of feed that back to my my clients and they they can also kind of put that into their their roadmap as well. Nice, yeah. It's like an extra health, health kick or kind of diagnosis, isn't it, at the, at the same time? Yeah, exactly. And once you've done your research then, what are your next steps in then creating that messaging strategy? Yeah, so I mean, kind of post-research, post the next steps are really, one, filtering through those findings, right? So that's what I call the kind of opportunity phase um, of the project, which is kind of synthesizing, synthesizing all of those findings, creating... Uh, a messaging map, which is really kind of priority, sort of making a a prioritized list of themes, of messages, um, and then kind of really finding your focus. So kind of really narrowing down and focusing on removing and not adding, because the challenge with the research phase is that you have all these conversations, you have all this data, you have all of these different kind of avenues to go down and it can be a bit overwhelming. So you have to kind of take a bit of a step back and look for the patterns. Like what are the repeated messages that people have been saying has, you know, something particular stood out or they've been saying they've been calling us um, X and we've been saying Y and there's an opportunity to kind of shift our messaging and resonate a bit more. So that, that phase is all really about filtering and kind of narrowing down and finding your your focus. Have you, are there any examples that you can share of insights that you've taken from research and then how that's affected copy that you've then written? Yeah, I mean, so the I've just recently uh, kind of wrapped up a, a messaging strategy project for a uh, business uh, messaging service, um, a really cool company based in Estonia, and they offer 
you know, if you ever have to do like two factor authentication, you receive a text message, they are the kind of company that, that handle all of that. Um, and one of the, the challenges for them is that they were in a kind of very price uh, sensitive industry. And obviously that's not a great kind of positioning play. And they really kind of weren't sure what to focus on in terms of their kind of differentiation and their strength. And they had a little bit of an inkling that not only the product that they deliver was a kind of key benefit to their customers, but also the way the way in which they kind of handle projects and kind of that personal touch that they offer as well. And so part of the uh, the customer research phase and speaking to their their customers, one of the the outcomes um, and the the messages that kept uh, coming up was this idea of them being one like super reliable that uh, the customers were able to kind of constantly rely on them that this kind of element of trust was quite huge that they didn't have to worry about their messages that they might do with other providers and if you think about this they're working with uh, financial institutions logistic institutions they're talking they're, they're they're working with kind of very demanding industries um, and I can even remember one of the the quotes um, having a conversation with one of their customers and he he said oh I can kind of sleep I can sleep easy at night, like knowing that my messages, our messages are in good hands, which was just this such interesting, emotive, very kind of sticky phrase that they would never have thought that like a CFO or kind of technical engineer would have said, I can sleep better at night. Um, So part of the messaging strategy was really kind of leaning into this idea of like peace of mind, which Obviously, it's not always going to be top, uh, let's say, like top of page. We also need to talk about the the features and what they offer. But as an overarching kind of messaging piece, that idea of trust and peace of mind was something that now they've kind of pushed to the, to the top of their strategy. That makes a lot of sense. How much of that differs to or how much is influenced by the competitors versus the, the voice of customer? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because... Finding out what your competitors are saying is important, um, but knowing to what extent it's important is a little bit more challenging. So, you know, I'm not one of those people that say, you know, just kind of focus and run your own race and don't look at what other people are doing, because I I think that that's not very smart. Um, I always perform a kind of uh, competitive messaging audit where I'm looking at what the key competitors are saying, what they're offering, how they're saying it. The reason being that your messaging doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Obviously, you want to understand, um, you know, usually one of my clients' key goals is, okay, we want to differentiate ourselves a little bit. In order to do that, you need to also know what you're differentiating yourself from. You want to be able to avoid some of the Me Too messaging Um, If all of your competitors are saying the same uh, kind of boring, you know, cliches, you also kind of want to avoid that as well. But I think that's kind of where it stops, right? I think it's just you want to look at what the market is saying so that you just have that awareness of what's going on. But your messaging, your copy should still be very uh, driven by number one, your brand, right? Who you are, what you stand for, what your mission is, what your focus is, what your customer promise is, what you're all about, your positioning in the market, and then two, really informed by your customers, which will be unique to you. And the way that you uh, solve a problem for them will be very different uh, than how your customers, sorry, your competitors do. 
Um, so I think that's probably you've kind of just touched on one of the, I'd say kind of biggest mistakes potentially in early stage companies is kind of looking around at what competitors are saying and, and blindly copying them. And that's like a huge no, no. And what, what really leads to this kind of sameness everywhere is everyone kind of really being lazy and forgetting that, um, your, your focus should be on your customers really. Yeah. I think, um, I mean a big, I suppose that's where we, I suppose when I said earlier about you sounding more like a proper marketer to me than, um, than exclusively a copywriter, <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was partly for that very reason. Uh, and I find that a lot of what we do is, is, is advising, um, clients how to stand out and be distinct which of course only happens in the context of the market and the competitor set so you know we talk a lot about you know being more party canon or whatever reference you might want to use for something that can stand out and I'm also I'm also increasingly a huge fan of just you know what Byron Sharp would call meaningless distinction so actually just visually or verbally or verbally or through sound just being distinct and memorable almost without any real logic behind it necessarily because we're all surrounded by so many pieces of comms every day and actually if you can just stand out and be remembered you're kind of likely to be to perform better than the most who like you say can fall into the trap of just copying what everyone else is is doing and saying that sameness is rife yeah definitely and i i love that i might steal that <laughs> from you always <laughs> <laughs> We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 0118995207. Only the other day, some pod-listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on strategy and brand identity. But we're not asking you to do that. Nope. Anyway, back to the show. And finally, brand purpose. Let's talk a little bit about brand purpose. What a load of fucking nonsense brand purpose is, yeah? Oh, the godfather of marketing, Mark Ritson, telling it like it is. Not what we were after. Hang on. It's done. I'm going to go to listener questions because this feels like a good time. <clears throat> Here we go. So, Diane, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us. So I'm going to start with good friend, call to action alumni, quick fire question um, in that order. <laughs> Dave Harland, a.k.a. the word man. <laughs> so Dave, Dave has said, what's your go to tip for really cutting to the chase ditching the fluff and standing out when articulating the proposition of a really complex SaaS brand. Oh gosh. All right, Dave. Way to nice go easy one. The... <laughs> <laughs> Way to go with the hard questions, Dave. I was like, I was hoping that it was it was gonna be like, you know, the espresso martini or whiskey sour, which would yeah. be an easy one <laughs> to answer. I like the fact he's brought in ditching the fluff as well. Yeah, ditching the fluff. I mean, getting to the, I'm trying to think of a few tips because I think that's, that, that question sort of encompasses quite a big piece of the project, which is almost kind of, how do you cut to the, say, sorry, how do you cut to the chase? How do you kind of simplify, get to the core of uh, a message? All right, I think I've got one good tip. I mean, I'm kind of thinking in the context of, I work with founders and marketing teams who, you know, they know their product inside and out. Um, they know their customers, but somehow the message is kind of clunky. It's still fluffy. Um, it's still a bit all over the place. And I think one 
great tip is just trying to imagine yourself um, explaining what your product does or what the company does, but to like your, you know, seven-year-old niece, you know, just to get yourself out of the funk of what, you know, where you are and get out, just ditch the the jargon. Um, Let's not talk in our kind of cliche B2B speak and just really simplify and boil uh, down what you do in something into a really simple uh, sentence. And I think that that's, um, if we're thinking of like tips, that's a good place to start. Um, And particularly if you're doing this exercise across a team, let's say you have the marketing team and sales and you have customer success success, and you all do this together, it'd be quite interesting to see and then kind of analyze, okay, well, when we had to boil this down to its most essential thing, like what what came up? And then I think you can kind of start um, kind of riffing from there. Um, And sometimes those conversations actually end up being great copy <laughs> not always um but you know sometimes the silliest exercises actually uh create gold yes yeah that's a great tip well well done you responded to that, that massive <laughs> curveball really, really quickly and I, there is something about explaining something to a to a kid that just forces you to actually think and you almost go through that i mean we we uh we've always had what we call the so what test which is not well, at the time of coming up with it, when we started GASP, whenever that was, 14 years ago, I remember thinking it was quite unique but it, and original, but it's far from it. I think there's various versions of this that exist and predate my life, let alone uh, my time running the business. But just just constantly asking so what to uh, to a, you know an existing proposition just forces you to think, well, I mean, uh, because we do that, it means that this, okay, but yeah, so what? That's, and so like that, that's a brilliant you have one. to do that, don't you, with, with kids. You have to like have already sort of done that in your head. Yeah. And that, you you know, the so what test, I don't want to just skim over that because that is a brilliant uh, tip and technique specifically when it comes to writing copy. So you've, if there's someone listening who has just put together a landing page or, you know, an email sequence or the they've updated the website, just go through all of your copy and make sure that every single line, like if someone asks, so what, there is an answer there. Um, so I think that's that's a, t- uh, a technique that I use frequently as well. There's another thing, actually, Diane, that, that, um, the, in fact, the original quote that um, I've already apologised to Beth for changing your intro, but the original <laughs> quote that she had she had intended for me to use of you was very similar, again, to something we talk about trimming the fat with copy. So like if you can take a, if you can take a word out and it doesn't affect what you're saying, then you should take that word out. And actually, you have a very, very similar approach and you articulate it better when you're talking about removing fluff and actually how... Uh, there's a real risk to taking away too much or trying to take away too much. Yes. Um, I, I think the second listener question is much easier. <laughs> so you can breathe. <laughs> uh, so the second question is from Sophie. She asks, in Joe Glover's call to action episode, you made his list of favorite the marketing meetup talks of all time for being someone who, and this is a quote, just brings it every time how do you prepare for a talk like that and what are your tips for bringing it oh brilliant um that's a great question actually so I don't know if people are going to like the answer but I am um (laughs) (laughs) I am a huge over preparer um I if the average person spends like two hours you know, putting together like a deck or something, I'll spend eight. It's something that I have like tried to, I guess, 
uh, streamline or like reduce and I just can't um so I just put a lot of time into anything even if it's for uh like podcasts or speaking events um and I think also I kind of apply that to kind of copy and messaging as well um but yeah I kind of over prepare I think it's probably from my girl scout days right? <laughs> so you know fail to prepare prepare to fail is obviously still ringing through my head so yeah I kind of I do very big uh drafts um huge drafts of kind of what I am going to present narrow it down make sure that the structure works and then I practice a a lot before I'm going to present something even if it's a, a webinar I'll always do at least one but usually like two plus run-throughs of something so that I feel comfortable and I think that's reducing a little bit over time um, but in the beginning you know there's just n- there's no worse feeling than being like live or standing on stage and just thinking I don't really know <laughs> what I don't really know my stuff here so I think over preparing is is a good strategy Sorry. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what though? I think um, I remember hearing a similar tip for years and years and years before it ever really sunk in. And I even thought about rehearsing presentations and talks. And it's weird. Maybe that's just reflective of me being a bit of a dick. But I I do remember that I, I... I don't know if it's, it's certainly not arrogance either. It's just a case of you just don't think you need to or you, that people actually do. And it's only... Um, it's only when you actually do rehearse and practice that, as, that certainly I've found as well, similar to you, that it just kind of takes that, that anxiety away. Yeah. So. And I, I do think just to kind of add on top of that, I do think there are different. You've got to find what works for your uh, style of learning and uh, your personality. And I'm definitely someone who I like to kind of write all my thoughts down and know all the different things that I could say and kind of understand the structure. And I know other people, for example, my partner, if he's going to do a presentation, it's just like bullet points and then I'll just roll with it. But I'm not very, I'm not a kind of off the cuff person. <laughs> so I guess just find what works for you, but you, you'll never be mad at yourself for over preparing. Yeah. I, the other thing I find um, on uh, on a similar tone or topic is that don't ever also expect that the nerves or anxiety that you might suffer, you might not uh, pre presenting. Don't ever expect that that just ever goes or that it's a thing that you can completely remedy and it disappears because I think it, it can exist for very good reason, but it also um, isn't necessarily a problem that you need to overcome. I had the pleasure of talking to a stand up comedian recently who's touring with, I won't say his name, but he's touring with a comedian uh, who's very you know well known globally and and he was telling me that this person prior to performing and he'd been he'd done a i don't know a few dozen gigs with him over the last few months would routinely throw up in the bin on the, oh on his way up to stage which i'm not trying to you know i'm not trying to make light of that type of reaction but it's just the type of nerves and anxiety that that person faces every time they go on stage and it's just it's almost part of their routine to going on the stage which sounds absurd but actually because this person is so wonderfully entertaining and seemingly confident and calm on on stage you just assume that other people don't suffer anxiety in the way that you know that someone listening or myself might prior to presenting but it's but it's very common yeah, and I'm also, that was very cryptic. Like, I want to know who it is, but I know you're not going to say, but... I'll tell you after. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the uh, the final part of the interview then, uh, the Diana, are four pertinent poses. Starting with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? You know, I don't know if I would. I think 
I would probably just say, you know, keep going and things will turn out all right, which I know is a bit of a cop out. Um, but to be honest, I don't know if I would listen to my own advice anyway. So it might be <laughs> probably fall on deaf ears. I would fall on. I think we're all, I think, you know, the, the route that we, that we take, I think we kind of take these kind of higgledy piggledy routes to where we are today. And I think if I kind of went back and gave myself too much advice, I probably would end up somewhere completely different. So yeah, I think everything kind of happens for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. I think it was Joe Glover whose uh, response to that was to echo his dad's advice to him, which was never give people advice or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, just had, I just had flashbacks. Uh, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I actually haven't thought of this one and now I'm really stumped. <laughs> what would I banish? To be honest, there are probably there are a lot of things that I can hate, and I think maybe I'm just not in a sort of hating mood today. <laughs> today, I think sometimes as well, my it might be because you know you, you've said a few times on this podcast so far, you're like, oh, you kind of uh, you sound like a proper marketer, and there is something that I have this kind of aversion to calling myself a marketer. <laughs> like I still somehow, even though I am, I still kind of don't feel like a marketer. I'm like, no, nah, I'm kind of a messaging expert I'm this kind of little secret dark corner over there that's like adjacent to marketing but isn't quite marketing so um yeah I think yeah nothing crazy comes to mind so <laughs> that's fine but I mean to be honest it's, it's one of those words isn't it where I think there's so many terrible marketers out there that I can understand someone naturally wanting to not be known or referred to as a particular title we, we had a similar thing recently where a lot of people have started telling us we're not an agency we're a consultancy because of the type of work that we get involved in but I and I and over the years I think 10 years ago if you had said that to me I'd have come out in a rash because the word consultancy just kind of makes me feel uneasy but I think also increasingly over time the word agency has made me feel even more uneasy so I think it's that that kind of weird uh certainly the I think a lot of the public perception of of ad land and marketing world would um would probably echo that sentiment that people don't think very fondly of us a lot in agency land yeah so I think you saying that has now just kind of brought something to my mind um which is you know just this constant division of like okay, being a growth marketer, being a performance marketer, being this marketer, being a product-led, being a customer-led market, like the constant division of like what marketing is. So I don't know what the thing is that I would banish um, because I'm not just, just going to banish like growth marketers. Like I work with a lot of them, they're brilliant people, but I think it's just this, this constant need to kind of break up what marketing is. But I, I think I'm wary to kind of want to banish anything because I think we all, it's this kind of constant evolution, like what you said about consultancy and it's just this evolution of like language and how we approach things. And we're, we're going to end up full circle in a few years time, like no doubt. Um, and have some, the next generation of, of marketing. So. Well, how about you, you, you want to banish question two of our pertinent. Yeah, phrases. actually, but... yeah, that's, I think that's a great one. Yes. This is like, what was that program with, that you kind of would pull a lever and something would fall in room 101? Room 101. Yeah. There you go. I'm putting your question into room 101. Mate. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice um are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners okay that's easier because I'm always reading something so I'm trying not to do like maybe the classic books that probably every single person has recommended but right now I'm rereading um different by Young Me Moon and I think that that's 
I think that's a great read, particularly quite pertinent to what we've been talking about, about kind of standing out and like understanding um, how and why companies just end up being so similar uh, to each other. That's a really great read. Um, And uh, Alchemy by Rory Sutherland was a really great read. And I think that that one I've actually recommended to um, the largest number of non-marketers because I think it's just a kind of great commentary on um sort of logical thinking and the kind of behavioral economics I, I think that's a it's a it's a fantastic book yeah i think rory's done well out of uh, royalties from our show oh uh, god in <laughs> fact in, in fact to the point he even messaged me and asked if we would recommend people get the audio book over the actual book because <laughs> he gets he gets more royalties for the audio book hilarious um, but uh, oh, I'm yeah, very happy, very happy to do so. It's an absolute belter. And and if you do get the audio book, you actually, because it involves Rory Sutherland and a microphone, you are treated to even more content than is even in the book. Um, but that's just what happens when you mix that device with that man. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> are there any uh, are there any non-work related books? I'm surprised you haven't said Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. You know. You know what? I am not um, a big uh, fiction reader. I go through a lot of phases, but this current phase that I'm in, I think has lasted like four years. So I think they're quite long phases. But yeah, my I would actually still put Harry Potter on my top um, of the fiction. I don't think any book will ever surpass it. Every now and then when I get kind of bored of the marketing and kind of development and habits and behavioral books, then I'll just kind of Google like classic page turner thrillers. So I can just get engrossed in a book and like devour it in two days. And then I dive back in. So yeah, I think there was, what was, what was the last one that I read? And I was kind of up, it was very frustrating because I kept going to bed like two, three, am because i just couldn't put it down when when i was asleep or when i something something like that i think that's helpful to the listeners just google anything about being asleep yeah i think the writer was from the midlands and it's uh it's a thriller and it was and it was brilliant maybe i'll have to send it to you after for the show notes so yeah there's like one book that i've read in the past five years that isn't about business which i don't know if that's sad or not sad (laughs) (laughs) is it hang on is it while i was sleeping no, I've just Googled uh, just on the off chance I could find it now. I'll tell you what, let's, let's, we'll make sure it's listed. You and I will, will confirm it and we'll make sure it's listed there on the, on the pod listing. Yeah, I can't remember. It was made into a film. <laughs> we've, got, we've got more clues. This is good. We need clues. This is good. And the writers from the Midlands. I mean, what, else, what more do you want from What me? else? I know. I know. I've already asked too much. It's too obvious. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that we we link to different uh, alchemy, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, um, and the uh, and the currently unknown book. But it will it will be there. And then, um, so I suppose lastly, it's just we we always dedicate every episode to someone, and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give the reason why. So, would you dedicate this episode to someone? Yeah. So I would like to dedicate the episode to a person called Amy Posner who I think is kind of relatively maybe sort of unknown within kind of marketing circles and perhaps who are listeners, but she is a kind of business coach. Um, She has coached me both in sort of copywriting world uh, alongside Joanna Weber, who's the the founder of Copy Hackers. So she's been quite instrumental in my, in my kind of business growth, both first as a copywriter and then 
uh, business and she's she's just a, a great person <laughs> she um, is kind of very uh, very knowledgeable she's kind of built a number of marketing businesses and and sold them and and yeah and I think that you know the reason I like to dedicate it to her is because I think you it took me a while to realize that you kind of need a bit of help <laughs> and you need someone in your corner um, and uh, kind of reaching out and getting someone to kind of help you navigate business or life or growing a business I think has been really important so yeah she's brilliant awesome oh brilliant well this this episode is very proudly dedicated to Amy Posner perfect Uh, so as a final call to action as I mentioned just now everything we've discussed will be listed um, wherever you get your podcasts but how else can our listeners get more Diane Wiradu Yes, I guess the best place uh, to get more Diane would be uh, one on LinkedIn. So uh, find me there, follow, connect. Um, I spend way too much time on LinkedIn. I should spend a lot less, but I'm always there kind of posting uh, stuff about messaging, copywriting tips. Or um, if you're interested to learn a bit more about what I do um, as a messaging consultancy with LionWords, then head to lionwords.com. Perfect. Well, listen, Diane, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a hoot, <laughs> and not and not the not too not too bad with those uh quick fire questions. Apart from Dave, <laughs> I'm going to definitely yeah. get in touch with Dave after this and say, "What were you asking me? Such a hard question for." Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or just email calltoaction at gasp.agency. Try and I try and I try.